Welcome to our virtual space, where thought leaders who in a variety of ways have committed themselves to improving our lives, share their work, perspectives on current affairs, and what brought them to where they are today. My name is Rob Liu, and this is The Exchange. Magnus, thank you so much for joining us today on The Exchange. We're very excited to hear about the work that you're doing, especially because it really applies to new and creative ways to provide healthcare in communities um, around the world. And so maybe what I'd like to start off with, for the sake of our um, viewers and listeners, is can you tell us a little bit about the Community Health Academy and what your role in the academy is? Great. Well, thank you, Rob. Um, and uh, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to participate uh, in your initiative. So my name is Magnus Conte, and I am the executive director of the Community Health Academy uh, at Last Mile Health, which is based here in Boston. Uh, so the Community Health Academy uh, is an initiative of Last Mile Health uh, that came out of a TED Talk that uh, our CEO, Raj Punjabi, gave in uh, 2017, where he expressed uh, the wish to leverage digital technology to improve the quality of the training programs that are provided for, for health workers uh, the world over, and to make that training accessible toward the last mile starting with uh, health systems leaders at national level uh, who can access this, this training uh, via digital platforms where they have connectivity, right through to uh, regional and district health leaders, as well as frontline health workers who can then access this training through a mobile device, an Android-based app, which we are using um, with multimedia functionality and can also work offline. So front-end health workers, we know the world over, uh, have challenges in having ac uh, access to internet connectivity. But with this device, um, the content can be downloaded by their supervisors, taken to the field, and then can be transferred to the devices of the front-end health workers via Bluetooth connectivity. And that content can be accessed then for their training in their own time and could also be stored on the phone and used for a refresher training or as a reference material. So the Community Health Academy is partnering with uh, ministries of health um, across the, the globe. That's our ambition to look at training needs for the health workforce and converting existing training materials into multimedia content, um, but also in circumstances where new content is required, uh, we are partnering with um, uh, academic institutions, uh, content developers, other NGO partners to develop new content, which then gets uploaded either on a website uh, for online training or on this digital platform and continuing to make high quality training accessible. So that's what the Academy is trying to do, to address the quality crisis that exists at the front lines of healthcare provision 
due to the lack of high quality training material and due to the fact that uh, access to that training material is impeded by the paper-based training that has been used for, for years. We want to leverage the availability of digital technology now to improve the quality of the training and to make that high quality training accessible as well. Yes. And the training that you're talking about, um, this notion of community health, just to make sure that our audience is clear on it, it is really an, a, an opportunity to try to uh, mitigate or solve the access problem to healthcare. Yes. Because isn't it part of the issue that there's simply not enough hospitals? There are not enough um, physicians. So you have a more networked, community-based kind of concept. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the current context where we are talking about universal health coverage, uh, in the absence of um, sufficient qualified health workers, uh, there is need to train local community members uh, to be able to help support um, health promotion, uh, behavior change communication to help people to understand how they can um, practice uh, in a, a, you know, kind of well-being approaches that would help them. But however, in circumstances where they are not feeling well, they need to access health facilities, that they, they have the, the, the knowledge and uh, the awareness that they need to go and access health facilities. So that's one aspect. Uh, but also there is the, the fact that um, the enabling environment in terms of at the national level to have the right policies, the right strategies, the right implementation plans, that capacity at the national level is also sometimes less than adequate. And therefore, part of what we are trying to do is to provide um, health systems leadership development training for health systems leaders at national level, as well as as regional level, where they are responsible for providing those policies and strategies that would support healthcare provision at the front lines. So we're not just focused on community health, uh, but the full range of right. um, healthcare provision and that continuum of training and building capacity of the health workforce. But, but of course, primarily to strengthen access to healthcare and making that reach the last mile. Yes, well, I mean, it's clear that you can't, if all you focus on is what happens sort of out there, you know, in the communities, you, you will miss the opportunity to make structural change, systemic change, to help support that kind of access over time. Precisely. So, um, Magnus, you clearly have done a lot of fantastic work. You're clearly doing very important work in the healthcare realm. Um, it's safe to say that quite often when we think back sort of in our past, there's something that happens, some event, some person, some class, some experience that you could almost go back to that in time, point at that and say, you know, that was important for me doing what I'm doing now. So can you share with the audience perhaps something from your past that you think really helped form the Magnus of today in terms of what you're doing <laughs> in community health? Thank you for your generous observations about the work that I've done. But I really consider myself uh, fortunate and privileged to be doing what I'm doing today. I come um, originally from Sierra Leone, where I went to school, went to university, and worked 
before I left for the UK. My parents never darkened the walls of a school or a classroom. They were non-literate, but they had the foresight to ensure that we were educated. My, my dad always said to me um, that when he passes away, which unfortunately has happened a number of years back now, he said he wasn't going to leave any assets for us. The only asset that he wanted to guarantee that he left behind for us is education. And today, the, being the son of non-literate parents, here I am leading a global initiative, providing health workforce capacity building using digital platforms. Um, my, my, my mother was, um, you know, grew up in a village. And when I was delivered, um, I was delivered by um, untrained staff um, in the local communities. I was fortunate I survived. Other people have not been so fortunate uh, to be delivered by traditional bath attendants and all the complications associated with that. So as I grew up and I reflected back on the circumstances and the context in which I grew up uh, and the opportunity that I had to go to school and go to university. Firstly, I trained as an agricultural science teacher. So I was in education from the very start. Um, and during that period, it was always my driving um, goal and ambition to contribute, to train and educate other people to improve their lives. Like my parents gave me the opportunity for, my, for, for me to be educated and to be where I am today. I then moved to the UK where um, I changed my career and trained as a mental health nurse. So that's how I entered the healthcare profession. And again, the passion that I had to help and contribute to, to health and well-being of uh, communities took me into that path. I worked for a number of years in senior management positions. And then I ended up back into education because of my passion in education. I became a lecturer practitioner in forensic mental health. And since then, I've been in education. I went to Ireland. I worked for the National Health Service there, the Health Service Executive, as it is called, developing masters and postgraduate programs, and worked as um, the director for the Center for Nursing and Midwifery Education in a university teaching hospital in Galway. And that's how my passion continued for this space, for training, supporting, building the capacity of the health workforce with a view to them being able to support healthcare provision and health well-being. I joined an NGO while I was in Ireland, and that's how I got exposed to the NGO world, working with ministries of health across Africa, uh, multiple countries, helping to build the capacity of the, of the ministries of health to train community health workers at the front lines to provide health healthcare, health and nutrition, um, care for uh, local community members. So my passion comes from my childhood, my background, uh, the opportunities I have been given and the privilege I have now. And I want to ensure that I, I extend that uh, both professionally and uh, at a personal level as I contribute to the work that I do uh, through World Vision's uh, initial exposure 
to that community health work and now with last my health as well. Fantastic. So clearly, I mean, like actually all of us at Lab Exchange, you are a, a, a real believer in the power of education. And I think all of us have been transformed by that, which is why with Lab Exchange, we're so very much focused on creating both access and opportunities for agency in the context of learning, ultimately. So, I mean, you are clearly in a particularly important sweet spot now to have a perspective on how, frankly, the world is changing in response to COVID-19. Everyone's talking about the new normal. Everyone's talking about the scope of this public health challenge, perhaps the most serious in 100 years that humanity has faced, um, arguably. So an interesting thing that I'd love to explore with you based on what you're doing with the Community Health Academy, how has the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic so far, changed your view of sort of your work, what needs to happen in your work, and how you might um, change what you're doing? Right. Thank you for that. Um, so let me let me go back to um, the issue of uh, universal health coverage. We all know what the challenges are to make uh, healthcare accessible to everyone uh, uh, in an equitable way, and not just because they can they can afford to pay to have uh, access to healthcare. During the Ebola crisis in West Africa. Uh, I was fortunate to be seconded there uh, to support the response. I got to see firsthand the fragility of health services in these countries, how they are not resilient enough to withstand these type of shocks. Um, you know, we now have this pandemic, um, the COVID pandemic, and the way it has, has affected countries globally including here in the United States. Yes. Um, you know, one of the most advanced uh, uh, healthcare systems in terms of sophistication, but yet still we see uh, the challenge, the shortage of health workers uh, the world over, uh, how that impedes the ability to provide um, universal health coverage. Universal health coverage needs to be powered by a resilient and a trained health workforce. And that is, that is the focus of the Community Health Academy, as I mentioned earlier. So we've been engaged, before this outbreak, we have been engaging a number of uh, uh, African ministries of health to look at how the Community Health Academy could support them with their health workforce capacity building agenda, leveraging digital technology. So we've been pre-positioning ourselves already and and in the middle of that, uh, we, in fact, myself and some of my colleagues had just returned from Ethiopia and Uganda when uh, the lockdown on travel, international travel, was put in place. Um, it meant that our work needed to pivot slightly. Interestingly, and maybe to some extent, we, were in, we, we are in a fortunate position that a health workforce capacity building is still required. In fact, even more so now for the COVID response, uh, with this being a new vi virus, the science, the knowledge about um, prevention, 
detection uh, 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 response is still evolving. And therefore, constant and ongoing capacity building is required. So we did a pivot, despite the fact that we are not able to travel, but through you know, uh, the use of Zoom and other um, uh, platforms, we were still able to engage with ministries of health across multiple countries that we are engaged in to start to discuss with them how can we leverage our digital platforms to provide training on the COVID response. Uh, so we have deprioritized some of the training, not all of it, for other um, areas that we were trying to focus and develop to prioritize training around COVID. Um, and what has happened is that uh, in Liberia, where we are engaged with the Ministry of Health, we have reinforced our training platform deployment. We've supported them in developing uh, the curriculum uh, for COVID-19 training for frontline health workers. That is now being digitized uh, for deployment. Uh, we've, we've worked with the Ministry of Health in Ethiopia, uh, where they have adopted our digital platform, the Android-based platform. Uh, they launched that about, um, about three weeks ago, and we've supported them in developing and uploading national content in Ethiopia, and that app is on the Apple Play Store and has been downloaded by over 10,000 users already in Ethiopia within a short space of time. Similarly, in Uganda, the, the app has also been adopted by the Ministry of Health and in partnership with Makerere University, that app was launched just last week. We already have over 2,000 users downloading the app. And again, using Ministry of Health content, we've uploaded that content onto the app and can now be accessed remotely. In the circumstances now of, of uh, of uh, social distancing, classroom-based training is now limited, and in some cases not even permitted by mm -hmm. ministries of health. Um, over the last um, couple of weeks, we've been having uh, conversations with the Ministry of Health in Sierra Leone, and again, uh, we've now, we now have approval from State House uh, through the President's Office. We've also now had uh, approval from the Ministry of Health of our concept notes to support them in health workforce capacity building. We are doing similar work uh, in Malawi with the Ministry of Health, again, supporting policy development and training development. Importantly, and I think it's, in, it's, it's, I would like to share this with our audience. Whilst COVID seems to have become the priority now for training and healthcare provision, it is also important to note that the provision of basic um, primary healthcare services really is an important uh, area to focus on, to be able to continue to provide those services. Because we've seen through other outbreaks, including the Ebola outbreak, that there are more deaths, in fact, were experienced in some countries due to the collapse of the health services and the fact that uh, uh, resources were not adequately allocated to continue to provide basic uh, primary healthcare services. There were more deaths caused as a result of that compared to the actual infection from the, 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 the virus itself. So I just want to underscore that point. And we are working with these governments 
to look at strengthening the, that policy around that and providing some training as well. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, so we've pivoted a little bit, but not significantly because our focus is on health workforce capacity building. And that's what we are continuing to do. It, it has accelerated uh, the engagement in these countries because now the governments uh, really need to move very quickly to support uh, training using digital platforms. Yes. So, I mean, clearly what, what I find really impressive is that the work that you do really spans perspectives from what happens at the community level with the healthcare worker, with the individuals in the community that they're working with, but it also goes all the way up to policy, right? At the governmental level, how do you think about systemic structures that will actually support it, et cetera? But there is one particular piece, though, that I just want to explore sort of a little bit with you, which is given the focus of much of your work in the developing world, right, in terms of moving the needle in that respect, you've mentioned several times the power and the efficacy of the app. So how it seems as if mobile and transmission by mobile is particularly important. Is that the case? It is particularly important. So um, let me just add also uh, that uh, our online platform, initially when we started, uh, when the Academy was launched, uh, we worked very closely with HarvardX team to develop our first online training program, uh, you know, which can be accessed on the edX platform. Uh, I was part of that. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> So it's um, uh, strengthening community health worker programs for uh, providing um, primary health care. That was launched in May of last year on the edX platform. It's now been released for a second uh, intake. Uh, over, the, over the period, we have over 52,000 learners globally from over 200 countries that have, that have registered on that uh, platform and participating actively at varying levels on the uh, discussion boards. Mm -hmm. we, have, we have just um, also launched a new platform uh, on the 1st of June. Um, we, we, the Community Health Academy is leading a consortium of um, um, content developers and uh, providers, which has core group, a tech change, translators without borders, as well as medical aid firms. We, we have the COVID-19 digital classroom. Uh, that platform was launched 1st of April and we are providing online training programs. We've, we've launched three training courses, uh, one on what is COVID, the second one on um, protection and prevention on COVID, and then the third one is on uh, mental health and well-being. Uh, you can just imagine the stress and anxiety that a lot of people are suffering now because of the situation. We also produced three animations to support that. And they have been translated into Hindi, Swahili, um, and now we are working again with Translators Without Borders for additional translations into French, Arabic, Portuguese, and other uh, local languages. So that's our online platform. But as you know, most low and medium income countries, access to the internet is problematic. Yes. We want to make this content accessible. That's why we have adopted this digital platform, um, which is powered by the Opia mobile technology, 
um, and working with ministries of health. This platform has the capability of working offline. So it has offline functionality. Once the content is downloaded from the internet, it can be transferred by Bluetooth connectivity to multiple devices. And once downloaded, can be used uh, by the frontline health workers without connecting on the internet. They can go through the multimedia content. Um, and then, of course, some training will still be required in terms of clinical skills lab training. Because in clinical training, as you're well aware of, uh, it will require some face-to-face -face demonstration, some clinical skills lab, and some practic practicum in the field. For that, we are working with uh, supervisors to support that. So yes, uh, the availability of digital platforms, online platforms, as well as mobile platform platforms is critical uh, for us to do this health work capacity building, particularly now in the, in the circumstances where there's uh, a social distancing required and the risks around uh, congregating in, in large groups of face-to-face -face training. Yes, of course. And so this will be a critical part of how the reach for the program and the training actually expands, right? Using those um, channels that yes. are formidable to a wider audience, particularly in the developing world. Um, so I think you're, it sounds like you're at, I mean, you're, you're doing work that is understandably a critical part of how we're going to sort of face COVID-19 right, as effectively as possible. There's no question about that. And for that, I really thank you on behalf of all of us for the work that you're doing, because I think what we've seen time and time again is that any way in which you can more broadly disseminate appropriate healthcare practice more widely and deeply into the community, the more effectively you can start to try to limit infections, contact trace, but also deal and perhaps try to head off some of the severe expressions of the disease. So I think what you're doing is, is, is truly remarkable. Well, well th thank you. Thank you for that. But let me just stress that we are not doing this on our own. Of course. Uh, we are deliberately collaborating with ministries of health uh, and, uh, in the driving seat, uh, but partnering with academic institutions, uh, multimedia content providers, te technology companies that support our technology, as well as other NGO partners. Uh, because this is, this is a, uh, a mammoth task that yes. no one organization can do. Uh, so that is in our DNA, uh, working as a, a multi-stakeholder collaborative to extend the reach. Uh, in, as a matter of fact, we have two regional hubs that, are, that have now been established, one at Makerere University in Uganda to cover uh, East and Southern Africa region. The second one is in, in, in the University of Liberia to mm -hmm. cover Western and Central Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, subsequently, we hope to establish in Asia and then in the Americas as a, as a way to ensure that we are not sitting in Boston and determining the training needs for those regions, but rather bringing together regional perspective through our regional faculty networks uh, in those parts of the world. So, so that's the work we are currently doing, and hopefully we will continue to scale up. Yes, of course. So Magnus, I mean, we've, we've heard a lot about the work that you and your colleagues do. So to give our viewers and listeners sort of a little bit of an insight into Magnus the man, when you're not doing the work that you do leading the Community Health Academy, 
What does Magnus do for fun? <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Um, I happen to like the seaside, and I'm fortunate. You know, I grew up in Sierra Leone on the coastline in Lunde, where the international airport is very close to the beach. Uh, so I like swimming. I like going for walks along the beach. Unfortunately, now I live um, in Harbour Point, just 50 meters away from my apartment block is the beach. Uh, so I go for walks along the, the, the walkway, uh, try and get some exercise. Um, at home, I also have um, a rowing machine, which I uh, purchased recently. Uh, and um, initially when I bought that, I, I thought I was going to put the machine through its paces. I very quickly recognized that the machine was putting me through my faces. <laughs> uh, so I, I do that for exercise. And um, just yesterday, I, I bought a couple of weights as well to, to help me. Uh, because of the nature of my work, uh, I work long hours, I, I travel, I do a lot of um, Zoom calls, interviews, you know, provide uh, talks. And sometimes I just need to to burn off some of the stress yes. that is related to this kind of very demanding work that we do. As a mental health professional, I recognize some of those uh, stressors and I find ways of uh, exercise, rest, going for walks uh, as a way of um, helping to manage my, my physical well-being, but also my mental well-being. I also have a family. Uh, my family back in Sierra Leone, um, I have, still have brothers and sisters and extended family. I, my, 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 my children, I wouldn't call them kids now because they're all grown up, they're in, in their 20s. They are in Ireland, uh, so I, I, keep, I keep in touch with them. Um, they, they, they keep me firmly back on the ground because they remind me very often um, not to get too carried away with the work that I'm doing. <laughs> but as a parent and a dad, you know, um, there's certain conversations we need to have. So I, I, I have uh, a lot of time for my family um, and I take great pleasure also in keeping in touch with friends that I went to school with back home in Sierra Leone uh, or I went to university with, I'm on WhatsApp with them uh, and that's how I keep myself occupied. I also watch um, uh, movies in the evening uh, as a way of also distracting myself from the multitude of things that I have to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost getting a sense that you have a very clear sort of a mental health program to keep yourself sane, right? Well, as a, as a mental health pro professional, I think I need to look after myself, number one, as I help to also support other people. Of course. Fantastic. Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you an, a strange question. Um, it almost relates to a question I asked you earlier on where I talked to you about, you know, something in your background that was very important to where you are today. Here's another facet of that same question. Quite often in our lives, we come to a crossroads, right? You can turn left or you can turn right. You make a decision. And that decision is critical to opening subsequent doors for you, putting your career and your focus on a particular pathway. I can think of a number of times in my life where I chose left versus right or right versus left. 
And it's fair to say that if I had chosen a different option in a multiverse of parallel universes, there would be a raw blue out there doing something not totally different, but somewhat different from what I'm doing now. Maybe related, but with a different focus. Can you think back, Magnus, to a time in your life where you went right versus left or left versus right, really at a crossroads? And that if you had taken the other option in the alternate universe, the Magnus we'd be talking to now would be doing something different. And what would that Magnus be doing? <laughs> That's an interesting one. Um, so I, as I mentioned, um, you know, Rob, and um, you know, talking to the audience here, um, we all sometime in our lives come at that crossroad and you need to make some strategic decision um, or a life-changing decision. I, I, I trained as um, an agricultural science teacher. Mm. Um, before I left Sayalium, I worked uh, for, uh, I taught in secondary school, I was head of agricultural science department, and then I ended up working for an agricultural project uh, as a deputy regional manager. I, but I left then, I went to the UK um, and hoping that I'll be able to do, you know, postgraduate studies. Unfortunately, things didn't work out, um, you know, for funding reasons, you know, even though I had a place at university, I didn't have the means to do my master's studies. And then I came across a friend of mine that we all grew up in Sierra Leone. He also had gone to university. Um, but was now in the UK. And just in conversation, I was asking him what he was doing. And he said to me, oh, um, I am, I'm, I've trained as a mental health nurse. I said, no kidding. What are you talking about? He said, yes, he said, I'm a mental health nurse. Okay, long story short, you know, with that encounter, I started to reflect, okay, now I don't have means to go to university. How, what do I do? Should I go back home to Sierra Leone? Should I change my career and be pragmatic and do something else that probably gives me another profession, another qualification, gives me means to further my career development? It, it only took me a couple of days to reflect on that and I made a decision. And I ended up training as a mental health nurse. Uh, and my, my whole career uh, took a different trajectory. And that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing today uh, as a health professional as, and as a teacher. If I wasn't doing this, mm -hmm. I would still be in agriculture. Um, because, uh, you know, I still love agriculture as uh, today. Uh, each time I go um, to, um, to, village, to villages, uh, I enjoy going to farms. I enjoy going, you know, uh, to local communities and, and um, engaging either in poultry farming or, or um, uh, some rice production work that they're doing. I, I go and engage in conversations with them just, just to sort of revive some of my agricultural interests and experience. That was my first career. I still have a passion, but I think I would have gone back and done that. But uh, that encounter in the UK and the circumstances I was in resulted in me changing my career pragmatically and I, I ended up working for the National Health Services 
in various uh, senior manage management positions until eventually I ended up as a lecturer practitioner in forensic mental health. So that's, I think, one point I want to underscore here is how each and every one of us sometimes need to be pragmatic and make the best of the situation that we find, out, find ourselves in. Absolutely. And not, and not say, this is what I want to do and this is the only thing I'm going to do. If it doesn't work, I'm still going to continue to pursue it until it works. Sometimes it's good to do that. But some of the times you need to be, uh, to look for the silver lining in a situation that you find yourself in and pivot and take advantage of opportun other opportunities that are in front of you. I, I, I look back at that moment and I say to myself now, I'm glad I made that decision. Mm, yes. So my very wise mother always said that for every door that closes, two or three open, right? And you just need to look at them and look for them and sort of be open to what those opportunities might be. Clearly, a door, an exciting door opened for you. Um, so Magnus, I mean, I think um, one thing at Lab Exchange that we believe very strongly in is trying to put people in the driver's seat and sort of unlocking their ability to learn. So one of our taglines is learning without limits. And um, what I've experienced actually is that when it comes to, and sometimes you've spoken to this, when it comes to your creativity, your drive, quite often the limits, the barriers, the hurdles that you need to overcome are as important as the doors that opened up for you, right? They really form who you are. So I wonder if you could share with us, and you've shared some really rich and personal things about your background. Was there a particular hurdle or limit that you had to overcome that you really feel contributed to who you are today? You know, my, my, my dad was a tribal headman uh, for our tribe um, in, the, in the region where we, 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 we grew up. My dad actually, um, migrated from his hometown, went to Freetown, the capital, uh, with, with my, my mom, and then moved across to Lunge, where the international airport is, and ended up um, getting a job there. And because of his advocacy for, for better conditions for his tribesmen, um, he became a chief. He was made a chief uh, in that uh, region. Um, he was, we, we, our family, you know, was very modest and, you know, we, we come from very simple backgrounds. But there are certain things, that, certain principles that my dad held onto, which is that, um, or which are around um, justice and equal rights and fairness for everyone. Um, and he lived that. He fought for his tribesmen. He supported them. Um, and he inculcated that in me as I was growing up, as all of us with my siblings, uh, that uh, we should always advocate for, for less fortunate people. Um, and for me, over the years, as I worked and studied, I have come across circumstances in which 
um, some injustice is directed at me or other people that I work with, or the people that I don't even know. And that ability to advocate for fairness for others has been a driving force uh, for me. Um, and my parents um, had an open house policy where, you know, we had tenants. Those tenants and their children will come to our living room and eat whatever food is there. Uh, so we had an open door policy. Um, there are tenants who are not able to pay rent. And my mom would just say, okay, whenever you're able to pay, that's fine, you can pay me. So that's the kind of background. And we had a, lots of extended family staying with us. So for me, I'm not surprised that I ended up today doing what I'm doing. I'm working in global health. I'm working in, um, in um, developing countries, in low and medium income countries. I enjoy going into remote villages and doing some of my work. I don't get that opportunity that much now because of where I am, but I, I love going to those remote communities. So what I'm trying to point out here is that upbringing of seeing my parents stand up for others, for justice, for fairness, and we are strong advocates. Um, they were looking after other people. We had extended family, children that are not my parents, our children were living with us. I'm not surprised that I ended up as a teacher, I ended up as a nurse, I ended up as a foster carer. Uh, I'm a trained and qualified foster carer registered in Ireland. We have three foster children living with us. They've been living with us for over uh, 13 years now. Um, and they are our children now. Uh, they, they came to us very young and they've grown up now. Um, one is in his, 20, in his 20s, uh, when she came to us at, at the age of 10. The other two came to us uh, around 18 months and two years. So that background that I come from is what has, I think, um, motivated me to do the things that I'm doing today because I experienced firsthand how my parents looked after others and advocated for others. Um, and I remain a very strong advocate for uh, social justice and fairness. Uh, and in the current context of what is going on um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the news, uh, I, feel, I feel quite passionate about being able to do something to contribute to a change in the discourse, the dynamic, and uh, the way um, you know, all races get treated um, in the current context of uh, what we are dealing with in this country and globally. Yes. Yes, so clearly, Magnus, I mean, service has and always will be, I'm sure, such an essential part of who you are. So, Magnus, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time from your incredibly busy schedule to speak with us on the exchange. It's been truly inspiring, and it's been fantastic to see sort of the chain of events in some ways, at least some of them, that led from your early life in Africa and then led you to what you're doing now for the world. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Rob, for the opportunity. And uh, before I go, I'll make another advocacy pitch, which is that uh, frontline health workers need equal protection as any other workers 
in terms of being able to respond to COVID. We talk about contact tracing, we talk about testing. There is the opportunity here for us to build the capacity of our frontline health workers who are in these remote communities and already working with um, uh, their, 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 their fellow countrymen or their, their neighbors and providing healthcare and supporting them. In the if era of, of COVID, we need to strengthen their capacity to do contact tracing, to continue to provide basic and essential health services, and even to train them in circumstances where they could do testing. Uh, but they, they need uh, equal protections in terms of PPEs to be able to do that. And if we are talking about uh, universal health coverage, we cannot, we cannot exclude those community-based health workers that need to be embedded within primary healthcare services and primary healthcare teams to continue to provide services at local communities. That's my final statement here. And uh, I, I hope your audience have found uh, my contribution here uh, useful. Um, and thank you again, Rob. Thank you to the exchange.